All right, before we get in the text tonight, I told Jamie and, and Julie that I had to deal with Jamie first this, this evening, and she's expecting me to tell a story or something, but I'm not going to do that. That's not what this is about. But she asked a question last week that I wanted to follow up on, as we had made the point that the um, Greek word for at hand is egos, and she asked the question, well, what about when it appears with the Lord? It says the Lord is at hand. Well... <clears throat> I gave her an answer then, but I wanted to give her a fuller answer now. There's only one place where it appears that way, and it's in the King James. And almost every other translation translates that particular verse. Philippians 4, 5 is the verse, by the way. Translates it near, which is what I told you the other day. I went and looked at in a Greek lexicon for the Greek word egos. And egos, for the most part, always means, uh, it, can, it can apply mainly to time. And when it applies to time... It means imminent and soon to pass. But it also can mean, if it's in the context, talking about place. And one place where that works is Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5, where it says, well, the King James says, the Lord is at hand, egos. But almost every single other translation there is translates that the Lord is near. And this carries with it the idea of not him returning, but the fact that he is there with them. Okay? So I hope that answers that particular question. I don't want to leave that hanging. But there's only one place in, in the entire New Testament that I can find. There might be something I might have missed it, but doing through Strong's and everything else, that's the only place where that particular uh, Greek word is, is set with the Lord. It's Philippians 4, 5. All the other places is dealing with a, a time situation where the scripture, the context is dealing with a certain time as opposed to a person. Okay. But we're getting, uh, we're getting with verse 5 tonight, and verse 5 is a continuation of something that John started in verse 4, uh, where John basically is writing the greeting of his letter, and is, uh, after the introduction he gets to the actual greeting of the letter, and like all other letters that were written during this time period, um, he begins with grace um, and, to be unto, uh, grace and, and peace, which is how... Letters were started back then, and he identifies himself at the beginning of the letter, like they did back then. We always identify ourselves at the end of the letter for some reason now, but they always identify themselves at the uh, beginning of the letter. But this time, as he's introducing the letter, and he says, this is John writing to the seven churches, he says, grace and peace, but where does this grace and peace come from? From God. But not only from God, from who else? The Holy Spirit. And now we get to verse 5, we have the Trinity completed because verse 5 says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So now he's made it complete. He's got all three parts of the Godhead in place. But... There's something, I'm, I'm looking at this, and there's something that's interesting to me about this, and specifically the order. What is unusual about the order here? Very good. That's exactly right. That's a good thing to pop in your head. But here we have God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and then the Son. Why do you think that is? Why did he... Leave Jesus for last. Okay, 
And that, that's also part of it. That comes a little bit later. Everything you said is correct. But here's what's going on here. This book began with the very first sentence, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a book about Jesus Christ. As one of you all said, I can't remember now, talking about how Jesus is going to be the one who's going to be the one who's going to take care of Rome. So this book, the book of Revelation is about Jesus and how Jesus wins, how Jesus conquers, how Jesus gives us the victory. So John changes the order here because now that he's got to this point, he wants to talk to us about Jesus. What is Jesus going to do? And so that's why that has changed here. And he also noticed in verse 5, he amplifies, as I think Jeremy mentioned, uh, his comments about Jesus because, once again, this is a book about Jesus. God's certainly a part of it. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter, is certainly a part of it because they're all part of the Godhead. But the emphasis is upon Jesus. And so that's why Jesus is saved for last. But John describes him as, um, first of all, who is the faithful witness? What does it mean that, first of all, he is faithful? What does that word faithful mean? Yes, Karen. All right, you can count on him. Uh, someone that you have faith in, you can count on. Um, does a, is a faithful, say if you had a faithful friend, where they... Is that someone you can count on, obviously? Is that someone that's always going to be there when you need them? Okay. Is that faithful friend going to hurt you in any way? Is he going to stick by your side through the good times and the bad times? Is he going to, or she going to be there if he's a faithful friend or she's a faithful friend, even when you don't get everything right? Jesus is always going to do What's best for you? Jesus is always going to tell you the truth. Jesus doesn't lie. Jesus is always going to be there. He is faithful in the same way God is faithful. But not only is he faithful in that way, the next word says he is a faithful witness. What in the world does that mean he is a faithful witness? What kind of witness? You know what a witness is? We've seen court dramas. A witness is someone who does what? All right, they speak on your behalf because why? All right, they know the truth, right? If someone witnesses and is telling something that's not the truth, they become a false witness. But Jesus is a faithful witness. He's going to be someone who will witness truthfully. But the question still stands... What is he witnessing? What is he witnessing? How is he a witness? How is he a faithful witness? All right. What's that? All right, he's a witness for God. In what way is he a witness for God? I'll let you answer more if you want to, but you don't have to. How what way is he a witness for God? All right. He's seen God and know God. Why would that be important? Okay. So you're saying maybe he is a witness before God? Okay. Karen? He knows a lot of stuff, okay. Michael, what are you going to say? So it's no wonder then in John 18, let's see the 27 or 37, I'm sorry, I think it's 37. He says, I am a witness to the truth. Jesus describing himself, he says, I am a witness to the truth. It's what? 
All right, and this is the word of truth. What were you going to say, Julie? All right, now very good. Now, she brought up something I was going to bring up. The Greek word here for witness is the word that we get our martyr, the word martyr from, okay? Greek word for witness is very similar to the word martyr. And martyr, of course, means someone to die in our stead. So if you look at it from that standpoint, in what way is Jesus a witness, especially if we're looking at this through first century glasses? Exactly right. Yeah, he died. Not only did he die, he denied, he died without denying God. He died doing God's will. He's somebody that did it. He's a witness that it can be done, right? These are people who are dying daily because of the fact that they believe in God and his son, Jesus Christ. Here is a witness who has done that very same thing. He died. He did not give up. He did not back down. He went all the way to the cross. An innocent man. He's a witness. It can be done. So he's not going to leave it like that, but maybe that's the idea here. Yes, Jamie. Very good. And so John, at the very beginning, he wants to make sure that we understand. I think it was Karen that said, here's somebody that knows what they're talking about. And not only is he somebody that knows what they're talking about, he's somebody that's not going to tell a lie. He's faithful in what he's going to be telling us about. He's faithful in that he's someone who has been with God. He's faithful because he knows the truth. He's faithful because he's been in the very same place you've been when he's, he was put to death unjustly. Just simply because of his belief, if you will. And so he's very faithful in all those areas. But he doesn't leave it at that. After saying he's a faithful witness, and there may, we don't know for sure, maybe a play in words with the Greek word martyr here. But he's a faithful witness, and he died. But then it says, and the first begotten of the dead. What is the first begotten of the dead mean? The first to rise from the dead. Now, is that true? I can think of several people who rose from the dead. Lazarus, widow's son. Um, my, my, there's, there's so many. All right, firstborn from the dead. Well, firstborn, first begotten means the same thing. And what you're, what you're reading is correct in a sense. You, you know, that paraphrase is correct in a sense, but we're carrying something a little different. What were you going to say? There you go. There you go. Now, we don't know for sure, because of the Greek word here, if it's talking about the idea of being the firstborn one or the first in preeminence. We had this big discussion. Remember when we were studying Colossians? Um, Colossians, I think it's three. Um, 317 now, I can't remember off the top of my head. But anyway, it talks about how that he is the first begotten of creation. Well, that means he's the first thing that was created. It means he has the preeminence of creation. But both things apply here. First of all, as Julie says, he is the first person ever in history to be risen from the dead and then not die again. Think about that. Lazarus, okay, Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. I believe he had to name him by name because if God, Jesus just said, come forth, every tomb in that place would have opened up. So he had to name him by name. What happened to Lazarus a little bit later on? 
You know, the Bible didn't tell us how long he lived. I mean, I like to think he lived more longer than a day because it kind of ruined the miracle if he didn't. But he eventually died again. In fact, every single person that we have record of, we assume that they ended up dying again because if they didn't, guess who would be worshiping with us tonight? Lazarus would be here. Or he'd be somewhere. Yeah, I'm still alive because I was risen from the dead. No, he died again some other time. But guess who didn't? Jesus rose from the dead never to die again. So if you look at it from that standpoint, and you're looking at it through first century glasses, what do we have here as a faithful witness begotten of the dead? First century glasses. New Testament Christians being persecuted. They've got a witness who knows what it's like to die and a witness that knows what it's like to be resurrected to never die again. And would that give you any kind of hope? Absolutely. You're about to be burned at the stake, thrown in the lines then, have your head chopped up. Jesus did this. I can do this. What I'm about to experience, it only lasts for a little bit. What's going to come after? Oh, what's going to come after? I will be like Jesus. He was the first one to do it. But I'm going to be next. I'm going to live forever once I get past this, this time of trial. But also it carries with it the idea of the preeminent one. And if he, had, if he has the preeminence or the authority as being what's talked about here, the begotten of the dead, that means he has authority over death. Now, we of course know that Satan had authority over death until Jesus came to this earth. But once Jesus died, and we have those words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Once Jesus died and was resurrected, this, he, the authority changed. He's now the one that gives the victory over death. And so he can have the preeminence. And, and for those of you who weren't in our Colossians class, well, the reason why this word begotten or firstborn, some translations have, is because with the firstborn in the family, and especially in Jewish days, you had the preeminence. You had the final authority because you got the double blessing. And we don't have a long time to get into that. But either way, it works, and it's something that should be, be um, hopeful to someone who was dealing with the things they were dealing with. Um, it's Colossians 1.15 that says he is the, has the, the first begotten of creation. But anyway, um, funny how things pop in your head. Verse 5, and it says, And from Jesus Christ, who is a faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the King James has the prince of the kings of the earth. Who has something different other than prince of king? What you got, Mike? Ruler. That's a better translation. Now, once again, why is this important? If you were reading this, especially in the first century. Jamie? So, who, very good. Who is the ultimate ruler? Jesus is. Who's really in charge? And um, God's on his throne. God's in charge. No matter what you're going through, it may seem like Rome and the emperor is the most powerful force on the face of the earth now. But who's really in charge? Uh, who was really in charge when Nebuchadnezzar thought he was all that? It was God, wasn't it? Uh, God is still in charge, and His Son Jesus Christ 
as at his right hand. So he is the ruler of the kings. He is the king of kings on the earth. But not only is he a witness and first begotten of the dead and the king of kings, notice what it says about how he feels about us. Unto him that loved us. Not only is he all these things, he's somebody that loves us. Yes, see. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's one of the things they persecuted him for because they had a different king other than Caesar. Absolutely. And um, so they were persecuted for that by the, among the many reasons. But um, I like the fact that John, when he wrote these words, he wrote the word uh, that loved us. The King James has loved on it like it's some particular time frame involved. But in the original language, it's in the present active vindictive. That means it never stops. It's linear. It just keeps going. We could say, we could translate this, unto him that keeps loving us and 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 keeps loving us. In a nation where many of the Christians were feeling unloved, they had somebody that loved loved them and kept on loving them. And to prove this love, what does the rest of the verse say? He gave his life. He died on the cross for us. His love was not just something that he said. He proved it. Greater love hath no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. Now, we need to spend just a few minutes talking about the last part of this verse. Because this is something that, that you may hear down the road. I might not hear down the road. It's just a little technical stuff. But it's something we need to discuss. King James has, in the last part of verse 5, these words and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's what the King James says. Somebody read the NIV for me. Freed us from his sin by his blood. And I'm sure there are several other translations that say the same thing. Here's what we got going on here. There are some manuscripts that have washed us and some manuscripts that have literally set free. The reason being is the Greek words here are the one for wash, loosen, and the one for set free, loosen, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, there's only one letter different. Uh, One has a, uh, the wash has an O in it, it's L-O-U-S-I-N, and then set free is L-U-S-I-N. So there's just one difference, and you pronounce them the same way basically in the Greek. So we don't know if somebody, as the manuscripts were being written, that somebody dropped an O, or maybe when the manuscripts were being written, somebody was reading to someone, and the word sounds the same, and the person who was doing the uh, the copying uh, left something out. So we can't be definitive in either way. But um, the majority of the manuscripts, that's why the NIV translates it this way, because they always do majority, uh, has the word uh, loosen, L-U-S-I-N, which means to set free. So you would translate it unto him that loved us and set us free from our sins. Well, is there any real difference between washed us from our sins or set us free from our sins? Not really. Now, I like the idea of what the King James has uh, here because uh, this verse fits so well with Acts twenty-two sixteen, where, you know, 
Ananias told Paul, Why tarest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. It makes a connection between baptism and the blood of Jesus Christ. If you translate it the other way, set us free, then you don't have that connection anymore. And don't know which one is right. But, um, but either way, it still comes out with the same thing. Jesus loved us so much that, that he was able to either wash our sins away through his blood or he set us free. Either way, it works. There's also um, where it says in his own blood here. Uh, does, I was curious, does anybody have a translation that says by the price of his own blood? Anybody have it in a footnote or anything? Because once again, there's, a, there's another word that's so similar to the others, it calls confusion for people with manuscripts. And so this could be literally translated, set us free by the price of his blood. And that's why some of your translations don't have in his own blood, but what? By his own blood. Some of y'all have that? Yeah, by instead of in? Yeah, I see some heads nodding. Okay, so y'all still awake. All right. Um, so anyway, but that's just in case you ever ran into that. Um, and I guess one reason what might be important is sometimes you uh, run into somebody and say, well, baptism has nothing to do with salvation because the wash here shouldn't be washed. It should be uh, set free. But you could argue back and forth, and none of y'all would, would be have the definitive answer on that. Any questions or comments on that before we leave that? Exactly right. And once again, that's more than likely why John waited to introduce Jesus at the end of the uh, Trinity because everything that he's going to be talking about is based upon this verse right here, as Jeff has already pointed out. But I want you to notice as we move into verse 6, something that's very important. He's already made the point that he is the ruler of kings, but then he goes on... King James has it this way, and it's a little, once again, a little bit of a mistranslation. It says, And hath made us kings and priests unto God his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, where there's a, a textual difference, the King James has, He has made us kings. What do other people have? Made us a kingdom. And that's the word that is there. It's not the word king, it's the word kingdom. Now, there are people who teach us today, or want us to believe, if you will, that Christ doesn't have a kingdom. Well, we know very well that he does have a kingdom, because right here it says what? He says we are in his kingdom. All right, how can you not have a kingdom if you have people in your kingdom? Okay, maybe I'll stay on this time. But anyway, um, he... He has a kingdom, and we're a part of it. Uh, we've been translated into his dear kingdom, as we are told. So uh, King James' word there is a very is not an uh, unfortunate word they use there. But then he goes on and says, not only are we in his kingdom, but we are what? Priests. And we've talked about this before. Um, priests aren't special kind of people that wear different kind of clothes and whatnot here in this day and age, didn't have any kind of special powers or able to grant forgiveness. Every Christian is a priest. And um, there's a reason why he's setting the stage for something he's going to say in a minute. But he wants us to know, first of all, that we are a part of his kingdom. If we're, not a part of, uh, if we're a part of his kingdom, what kingdom are we not a part of? Huh? The world, which is this specific time, Rome. 
You know, who's, who's your emperor? It's not, it's not who's Caesar. It's Jesus Christ. You're not in his kingdom. I mean, you're not in Rome's kingdom. You're in his kingdom. And what would be so unique about all Christians being a, a priest? What would, be so, what would be so good about that, especially if you're looking at this through first century eyes? I think I saw Karen Winder jump there. All right, you have access. Priesthood means access. Um, the priesthood in the Old Testament were the only ones that had access to what? The holy place. And the high priest only had access to the most holy place. If you were a Jew, you could walk through the court of Gentiles. You could walk through the court of uh, women. Uh, you could walk through uh, the temple court. But boy, when you got to the holy place, you had to stop. Because you don't have access. You don't have the proper credentials to get in. But now we have access. We have their credentials. In the same way the Old Testament priests, we have access to God. In fact, um, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.16, we can boldly come before his throne of grace and mercy. Now, why would that be important to somebody living in this day and age? Don't you think if somebody was persecuting you every day, you might want to talk to God a little bit? And you want to know you had access to him? And you want to know he was listening? I think that would be something that would be interesting to us. And Paul kind of, I mean, John here kind of breaks out into like a little song here. But it says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There are some people think that he may even be repeating a song here that they sang in churches now. And um, we have songs that are very similar to that. But who should be getting the glory? Should it be Caesar? No, it should be Jesus Christ. Who has the dominion? Is it Caesar? Jesus Christ. How long does this glory and dominion last that Jesus Christ has? Forever and ever. It doesn't stop. Um, and then the customary Hebrew ending, amen. So let it be. This is, this is absolutely the case. Any questions or comments before we move on to verse 7? And this, hopefully we'll get to verse 8. I don't know if this verse 7 is going to take a little bit. It says, Behold, he cometh with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. All right. Behold, he cometh with clouds. What is this talking about? All right, let's find out what's going on here. There are some people, and... Some a lot smarter than me who will totally disagree with me here. But I don't think this is talking about the second coming. The reason being, it doesn't fit with the context of what's going on here. Why, after saying stuff that's going to happen shortly, some things that are at hand, why would he throw out the second coming right here to people that were needing the encouragement that needed something was going to happen soon? Okay? This doesn't fit the time schedule. To have John talking about the second coming when he just started talking about the urgency of how something something's going to happen very quickly. And this is something that's so far off. Well, keep in mind, as John has already pointed out, that this is a book of figures. This is a book of signs. This is apocalyptic language type of things. And so... We can maybe think, was this a term or something that's used 
to maybe talk about judgment? Yes. Okay. All right, let's just look at some passages real quick. Um, tell you what, I'm going to have time to look at all of these. Um, let's just look at Isaiah chapter 19 and verse 1. We'll pull one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament and just show you an example of something. Here we have an example of how this idea of the Lord riding on a cloud means something totally different than his second coming. The burden of Egypt. Behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud and shall come into Egypt, and the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of, the, of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. Now this whole section here in Isaiah is dealing with woes to different countries who are being ugly to the Israelite people. Now, do we read that? This is in prophetic language. Do we believe that Egyptians looked up one day and there was the Lord riding in on a cloud? That's right. And he slayed all the idols who are not really slayable, are they? No, it's figurative language to say what is happening, that judgment is coming upon the land of Egypt for what they did to the Israelite people. All right? Now, let's look at a passage in the New Testament. Let's turn over to Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is an interesting chapter because it deals with two different things. Who can tell me the two things it deals with? It's a prophecy about two different events that are going to happen. All right, the signs of the time and the end of the age. What was the sign of the times? Destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the age was when Christ came back, right? All right, with that in mind, the way chapter 24 is divided up, you have the destruction of Jerusalem in the first part of it, and you have the Lord returning in the second part of it. And the verse that separates the two is, just so you know, is verse 36. that says, But of that day an hour knoweth no man, no, not the Father, no, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. In other words, everything prior to verse 36, he says these are things you can know. Set your timetable on it. Everything after verse 36, you can't set a timetable, okay? So he's talking about destruction of Jerusalem. But notice what it says beginning in verse 30. And then, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and there shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds and from the end of the heaven to the other. And now learn the parable of the fig tree, which when his branch is yet tender and put forth leaves, do you not know that summer is here? In other words, look at the signs. So likewise ye, when ye shall see these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. So... The generation that was living then, or else they're all still alive, the generation that was living then was going to do what? It says in verse 30, Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory with power and great glory. That's not the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's judgment upon the city of Jerusalem. All right? Now, with that in mind, go back over to the book of Revelation and notice that what Jesus says there in Matthew chapter 24 is very similar to what he just says here in, chapter, in verse 7. 
of chapter 1. It's very similar. So, in fact, he even says the idea, every eye shall see. Those are the exact same words in Matthew chapter 24. Okay? Behold, he cometh with the clouds, and every eye shall see him. So what could be, talk, be talking, what could John be writing that Jesus is telling him to write? What does he mean when he uses this apocalyptic language about Jesus coming in on the clouds? Judgment is coming to Rome. And that's what I think it's talking about. I don't think it's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, the second coming of Jesus Christ is a real thing. And certainly the second coming of Jesus Christ would give us hope. It gives us hope today that one day everything is going to be made right and God's justice is going to prevail. But to somebody that was dealing with the here and now, if we're looking at this through first century glasses, they want something done with Rome. You know, They want it done now. And that fits into the context of both the beginning of the book of Revelation and the very end of the book of Revelation. The end of Revelation, what does it say? Behold, I come quickly. Well, that can't be talking about his second coming because quickly just doesn't work there. But judgment on Rome works here, doesn't it? Especially if he's talking about in uh, apocalyptic language. In fact, he goes on and leads me to believe this. It says, of course, every eye shall see him. Doesn't mean literally every eye shall see him. It's talking about all of mankind will take notice of what happens. Uh, the fall of Rome was an amazing thing. I mean, people are still writing books about the fall of Rome because no one would think that Rome would fall. And the reason being, nobody thought about it falling from within. They thought about it being conquered. Well, it wasn't conquered. It conquered itself. But all mankind shall know about this is the idea. But he specifically mentions they also which pierced him. Now, folks, that's an interesting thing there about those who pierced him. Who pierced him? Roman soldiers. In fact, this right here, and, and all through the book of Revelation, we, we have a, a quotations from the Old Testament after quotation of the Old Testament. In fact, the quotation we got here pulls up from Isaiah and also from Daniel. But this idea of they also shall pierce him is a quotation from Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 but it's specifically used in the New Testament in the Gospels in a certain kind of way. Turn over to John chapter 19 and verse 37. Here we have the crucifixion scene. And notice what we've got going on here before you get to verse 37. It says, beginning at verse uh, 32, Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when... They came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and who is the one who saw this that's bearing record? John. Oh, he's the same guy that's writing this book we're reading, right? And he that saw it bear record, and the record is true, and knowing that he hath what he saith true, that ye may believe, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. Again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Now John makes direct reference that this scripture is a fulfillment of who. Who did what? 
Who pierced the side of Jesus? The Romans. So, I think personally that the reason why this is here is John is putting forth something that he's already written about that they would be familiar with that says, they also which pierced him. They're the ones that, behold, he cometh with the clouds. It's talking about the Roman Empire. And then he goes on and says, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Well, you look at all kindreds and somebody will say, well, that's talking about everybody. Well, then that makes no sense whatsoever. Because why would these Christians wail when they saw Rome fall? Or for that matter, if it was Jesus Christ and this was his second coming, I, hopefully I won't be wailing that day. Some translations have mourn. Some translations have weeping. And not the weeping kind of like, oh, I'm so happy I'm weeping. No, this is bad kind of weeping. Okay? So what in the world's going on there? Well, he's making a play, on, if you will, or a distinction between what he just said in verse 6 and now what he's saying in verse 7. We are not kindred of the earth, are we? If we want to use the same term, what kindred are we? Huh? Say it, somebody loud, that's right here. Yeah, but what did he just say? We are, he made us a what? We're in his kingdom. He's making a difference between those who are in his kingdom and those who literally are earth dwellers. That's literally what the translation is here, earth dwellers. What do you want to say? All right, and all the nations of the world. He's making a comparison between those who are part of God's kingdom and everybody else. And if you're not part of God's kingdom, during this time period and Rome falls, what happens? Then you're going to wail. Uh, Rome, of course, was the one that was the one that provided the roads, provided uh, commerce, provided everything, and this was a terrible thing when Rome fell. That part of the world uh, knew barbaric uh, invasions like you never believed. We're going to, I know we need to stop. I need, let me finish verse 7 very quickly. John does something here that's kind of neat. King James Version says, even so, amen. Anybody have anything different? Yes. Yes, amen. Little translation is yes, but here's what he's done. He's put in the Greek word for yes, or so be it, and he's put in the Hebrew word for the same thing, amen. So he's saying no matter how you look at it, from the Greek side of things or the Hebrew side of things, this is going to happen. And we'll talk more about that next week. Thank you.